I relate this to our society in general, right? That everybody wants a quick fix and a soundbite. And I wish they knew that design is rigorous and a real discipline and that it is available to anyone and has relevance everywhere. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Design Adjacent, the podcast that talks about the nexus of design today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson. And today we have a really special conversation. We're going to talk about how design can be used to create real and lasting social change, among other ways in which design can have impact. Today, my guest is none other than Cheryl Heller. Cheryl is a true leader, designer, scholar, business strategist, and author. Her experience has expanded everything from corporate to philanthropic, nonprofit, and academic worlds. And in each role, she's been an important part of building, designing, and envisioning groundbreaking programs. She's founded two companies along the way and new programs at the School of Visual Arts in New York and Arizona State University. She's taught creativity to leaders around the world, not just here in, in the United States, but in the UK, Kenya, Mexico, Sierra Leone, India, China, and South Korea. Her clients, she's helped grow their businesses from small regional enterprises to true global market leaders. But it's not just her work in the traditional professional spheres of design that we want to talk about today. It's really Cheryl's most recent positions and the things that she's been able to do, heading both design integration and innovation design, uh, building programs that she created the first STEM-based master's program for design of social innovation, programs that really touch the nexus of design, engineering, and business. Cheryl is truly an example of this extension of being design adjacent. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that she's also a distinguished AIGA medalist for her overall contribution to the field of design. She's recognized for deftly embodying. That's a great way to be recognized for deftly embodying the many dimensions of communication design and for inspiring and guiding organizations and individuals to use design for social innovation and as a strategic tool to improve the overall human experience. I'd love to welcome today, Cheryl Heller. Cheryl, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Fanny, I am so happy to be here and I'm so thrilled that you are leading AIGA. I love everything you're doing. I love your energy. I love your curiosity. So thank you. Well, thank you for just for joining us today. It's to start off, this is really interesting and such a timely moment. I was reading through some of my notes and realize it's almost been 10 years to the day that you authored these words. Social innovation needs design and design needs social innovation. A piece that you put together for Stanford Social Innovation Review. Talk a bit about that moment and that proclamation. It's been 10 years to look at this nexus where social innovation and design meet. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. It's always interesting to hear people talk about what you're what you've done in your life. So I was right. thinking, you know, I've had complicated relationships with design, and there have been many moments in my life when I thought it was limiting. Like I didn't want to be called a graphic designer. I didn't want to be called a 
product designer. I didn't want to be called, you know, because because I want to do everything. And and what I've learned is that design is everything. Design is right. a way of approaching life. And I'm more committed and more enthusiastic about the potential of design than I've ever been. Uh, what I meant when I said that social innovation needs design is that in order to understand the complexities of human society, in order to understand people, in order to collaborate, to navigate in uh, ambiguity, these are all skills that designers have. And they are precisely the skills that allow us to innovate in a way that benefits people and do it in a way that, that actually serves them and includes them and is relevant to them. Wow. When we think about, you know, in, in those are the kind of the early moments of thinking about social innovation and design. Later on, you came back a few years later to talk about the impact of the work that was going on. And professionals, and I, I use that word because we start to see people coming from all different backgrounds coming in, to look at, at social innovation. But then after we get this rush of excitement around it, I love the conversation that moves into thinking about measurement. So it moves beyond kind of trend to really being an impactful part of the way we, we move things forward. When, when you came back to speak about that next need for measurement, one of the things that struck me was the fact that we know that there's a lot of energy, money, and resource going in it, but how do we show that these applications are improving lives? Yeah, and I think that's it's related to one of the dilemmas that all new forms of design have faced. Right. I was five years into chairing the program at SVA that I developed, right. and I said, you know, we see evidence of the effect that this has on people who study it, on people that they touch, but we can't quantify it. There, right. there are stories that if you already know them and if you see it yourself, you believe them and you're, you're a great mm -hmm. um, supporter. But for designers to stand up in a room of scientists or right. a room of statisticians and say, well, Here's the effect that my work has. We never had the words. We never had the mm -hmm. means mm -hmm. to do that. And mm -hmm. so that's what measured was. How do we discuss and how do we quantify the, con the, the difference that design makes? And that was the beginning of a quest that will go on for a long time because I, don't, I still don't think we... Uh, we have it. There's a, I, there's a new, and in fact, I could send you a link if you want to make it available. Please do. Bill and, Melinda, yes. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and USAID just organized a special supplement to a, a publication on global health that USAID puts out. And it was all about human-centered design in global health and, and what it is and where it comes from and the effect that it has. And I wrote one of the articles with a colleague, Anne Lafon from John Snow, Inc. So the conversation goes on and the investigation goes on because it's pretty new. It really is. It, I wanted to start with there with thinking about social innovation and moving to it maturing as a space. Because what's interesting, we talk about kind of the adjacent space is we're having conversations about impact 
which is always the bread and butter of nonprofit work and social work. Well, how do we move from where we are to the impact that we're having? And I think it's, like you said, it's a healthy part of that maturation process to say, okay, how do we move from the good idea to understanding that these ideas have impact in our space? Because that's really the, the way that we translate design's impact, design's value to other professions. Like you said, that there are other professions who are built on those impact models. What's interesting, and I think for our listeners to go, you have a deep commitment to social innovation, but you didn't start off with that being the name or the section that you're in. You started off, as you said before, as a designer. Talk a bit about your journey. What led you to the kind of these points, starting off as a designer and kind of looking at the, those first set of creative problems to where you are today? Yeah, well, a, a friend has suggested that my motto in life is, there must be a harder way to do this. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I find that I repeat that. Um, I, you know, I had a career. I had a career in advertising. I was invited to start a design department in the biggest advertising agency in Boston. It was a national agency. And I really, I bought into the corner office and the high heels and the, you know, all of the accoutrement right. of careers. And I had an epiphany. I just realized, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. And and most of what I was doing, and this mm -hmm. was after years of doing it. Right. And um, we had dinner with some new neighbors in New York. And a woman named Jamie Cloud, I was having too much wine with her. Uh -huh. And I said, what, what do you do? And she said, well, I develop sustainability curriculum that overlays normal curriculum for K through 12. And I said, yeah, what's that? Right. And she told me, and I said, oh, that's really interesting. And she also told me, she was calling her organization the SEC. And I said, there's another SEC, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's probably not a really smart, um, the best name for you. Anyway, I said, well, I want to know everything about what you do. She came down the next morning with a stack of books. Right. And she was standing in the light in just inside our apartment. And I said, this is going to change my life, isn't it? And she said, yep, it usually does. And it just knocked me for a loop. It was Peter Senge and David Orr and Paul Hawkins and all the people we know so well now. But what happened to me was I said, this is what I really care about. This is what I want to do. How do I integrate this with design? And I didn't know. And literally it was a period of eight years of just identifying people who were doing things that I really admired and thinking about how what I knew how to do could help them. And that was doing it the hard way. <laughs> you know, People don't have to take that circuitous route anymore. You know, but I think it's, as I said, it, we're all informed and forged by the journey, right? And I, I love having that question because we can see the work that you're doing now, but all of those experiences and finding meaning or not finding meaning help to fortify who you are today and these conversations. And we think about it that I remember being in school and it was like you became something. You went into professional path, you became something and it locked you in. But really kind of our conversations here about kind of the design adjacency and the way design and business and leadership can go, it breaks all of that. But your background and journey is that noisy, is that noisy part of breaking it up. How do we think about it? Right. Yeah. And I think designers, 
if I look back, I've had periods in my life where I was part of a bigger institution right. and I did what that institution does. I had a job, you right, know? Right. I mean, n- not all that long ago, designers were told, well, you can't write. There are professional writers who've been trained for that. So don't you think about words. And I was thinking about that when you were talking about your kids. And so a combination of those defined roles and then periods of, okay, I'm right. going to go out. I'm going to start my own thing. And I'm going to follow my interests and I'm going to, I'm going to change, you know, and those contrasting periods of sort of being locked into a defined role and then getting to reinvent yourself is a wonderful part of a designer's opportunity. It really is. You know, one of the things that, that I find really interesting as well, when you talk about reinvention is the role that you've had in academic spaces to help kind of shape the way that successive generations of designers engage with the world. Really interested in how you've built programs both at SVA and at at Arizona State that were at these nexuses between engineering, business, and design. What were some of the principal challenges you faced bridging those disciplines? Because I think you you were doing one of some of the first programs that brought all this together. Yeah, and they were very different. At SBA, because it's a it's an art school, it's a creative school, the challenge was convincing non-designers to come to a design school. And, you know, we had a wonderful student who'd come from the London School of Economics, right? right. And she said, I want to learn design. So it was, a, it was promoting and communicating and getting the word out in that case. But at SBA, there was no bureaucracy that you know, we were as inclusive as we could be and as the people we could attract. ASU, totally different story Mm -hmm. because it's the largest public university in the United States. Right. And the schools are very siloed. There's a desire to put them together, but then everything about the way academia is structured mitigates against actually doing that from pay scales for faculty to schedules to everything else and not least faculty who teach what they teach and think that's just what they should be teaching and that's fine. So when we launched a transdisciplinary program that we really wanted to be fully integrated, not here's this chunk on business, here's this chunk on engineering, here's this chunk on design, it really meant inspiring the faculty to put aside what they were used to teaching and thinking about it from a student's point of view. Right. And, and it was wonderful. And everyone got to learn and everyone, everyone got to see the principles that they had in common, the processes that they had in common and where each discipline contributed something new. Right. It's really that power of seeing how other disciplines can come together and contribute or how they can amplify and enhance what you have. But I also find it interesting when disciplines come together, how much we start to realize we have in common, that we see problems that we're each thinking about, but from our own lenses. I always think about a quote that Peter Senge, something Peter Senge said, he said, all boundaries are arbitrary. We create them and then we find ourselves trapped within them. And if you, and it's, you know, going back to those original writers that Jamie Cloud introduced me to. Nature doesn't have silos, right? right? And, right. and when you're out in the world, 
problems don't happen that are only engineering problems or only business problems. Right. Everything is connected. And so what it really means is you use the world as a model right. instead of the traditional limited institutions. Which I think, you know, really speaks to our dynamic future. One of the things that, that I'd love to talk about, you know, in, in thinking of you working as a strategist and as an educator, there's one space that comes in and it's a word that's always been near and dear to my heart. And that's entrepreneur. I remember that being the challenge as, as a young kid and being interested in starting my own business and that being a big deal to learn how to spell entrepreneur, right? As a young kid, I understood what it meant to kind of create a business. And then that's always been a part of my kind of professional journey and thinking about that. But, you know, I, I had been interested in our conversations about looking at entrepreneurship today and kind of your thoughts on redesigning the way we support, engage, and think about entrepreneurship. I think it's really important to recognize first that nothing is the same as it used to be. Right, right. That the world markets are not what they used to be. Society is not what it used to be. And so becoming an entrepreneur takes very different skills than it used to, right? When people actually believe that doing a five-year plan, that you would know what your profit margin would be five years from now. Right. And so becoming an entrepreneur requires the skills that designers have. And again, it's functioning in ambiguity. Right. And scoping and reframing complex problems and thinking about things at a systems level. And so I think in the way that entrepreneurs need to be in the world now, they need design skills, whether they know what they're doing is design or not. And the other aspect that I think is really important about entrepreneurship is it's been the way it's taught. It's been a very narrow swim lane right. of, you know, here's what your fourth slide should say. Here's right. what your ask should be. You need an exit strategy. You need to try to get money from Silicon Valley, whatever it is. And, you know, the most people in the world don't need that, don't want that. Um, and in the places where economic regeneration and recovery is most needed, right. Scale doesn't matter. Innovation doesn't matter. Right. What matters is that you create value. And so I think design is perfectly positioned to really pay attention to who needs to be an entrepreneur now, who wants to be an entrepreneur, and how does the traditional approach need to be modified in order to be relevant to the people and places where it's most needed. You know, it's, it's really interesting. So going back to my joke about being a kid and, and learning how to spell entrepreneurship, you know, that was different. I understood what it meant to create value through a business of professional needs without having any of that structure, any of that complex overhang that the big word provided, right? And it kind of speaks to that space that you're already naturally moving into a space in which you understand how to create value, which is at its heart. What became the stifling part was then building in the expectations of the world of what it should be, to your point of how we often think about, you know, I always thought about creating business and creating value was really, as we said, about problem solving. It was about, you know, making something better, making something more dynamic, solving a need to go into it. But when you start to get to the study of entrepreneurship, to your point, 
You then have all of the business plan has to have this structure. You need to have this page on this end. These are the acceptable ways in which you operate. And they create a certain type of enterprise, which sometimes we falsely come in and believe that's the only type of enterprise, right? That's the only space in which entrepreneurship can have. Early in, in my career, I had a mentor who always pushed the idea of intrapreneurship and talked about creating from within and these kind of reinvention spaces. And it was so counter to what everything else was being taught. I know you've expressed that this kind of opportunity for design to rethink not just the entrepreneurial landscape, but really the curriculum that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. How do we give people the tools without that heavy framework? How do we make it relevant and useful for them, right? You know what you, I love what you're saying about creating value. I also think that what gets lost is that businesses are about relationships, right? Right. They're about, it's about thinking about other people and, and what they need or what would be of value to them. And education is a relationship. It's understanding what your, what your audience needs what will make them successful, what they want to do when they graduate from whatever program or class you're thinking about. And that gets left out, right? Right, right. In the same way that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and especially in the the sort of classic establishment entrepreneurship, you know, people, they get really excited about having a new thing, a new technology. Right. And a big mistake that they make is, I got an idea now, let me find a market for it. Right. Right. When we know it's identifying a need and then fulfilling that need. It, it really is. And that's what, you know, draws people. When you think about folks creating businesses, you know, how many people define themselves an entrepreneur first? They define themselves by the business or the problem or the solution they're, they're finding, right? It's their branded entrepreneur later on. But, you know, I, I love the, what comes with entrepreneurship at its heart is really this sense of agency, this sense of I can do something that can have an impact and make a change. And I think in, in the research that you've been doing in the programs bill, it really dovetails nicely with this idea of social innovation, with design for social innovation of I can make a difference through the approach, the work and the skill that we have. How have you seen in the last few years as you've been working in this space, how have you seen designers and business leaders mature in their boldness or their ability to take those skills and have real social impact? Well, backing up one second okay. to reflect on what you just said, I think design itself is agency. Right. And I think any designer that's been practicing for any length of time recognizes at a certain point the power that they have, right? Right. right. Something's going on. I mm -hmm. don't like it. Let's change it. Or I want to reinvent myself. Let me redesign this. And so I think that's at the heart of design. Interesting, the maturity. Right. A bunch of things, right? I think more people are recognizing that when you disaggregate the process of design from the traditional artifacts, from the craft, and there will always be craft and there should always be craft. When you disaggregate that, you have a process that you can use everywhere and for everything um, from imagining, you know, an event to changing, trying to change a whole section of society. I think in all honesty that 
there is much more maturity needed. Okay, right. I think that social design and design activism and social innovation design and all those names are designers are just coming to realize that having the power to affect other people's lives has to come with responsibility. Right. And I think it also comes with measurement. And and I think there's such enthusiasm about changing the world and, you know, making an impact. And so I see the beginning of, hey, let's look at what impact we're having. Let's look at what we're changing. Let's be responsible for what we're changing. And so uh, there's a growing sophistication in terms of how design can be applied to those problems and a growing sophistication about responsibility for the changes that are instigated and lots of room for all of us to grow, right? right? Myself included. This is new. It's new stuff. Which for me in our conversations becomes really exciting stuff, right? These spaces mm. in which kind of the messy spaces on the edge that we're yeah. figuring out as we go in. What advice do you have for design practitioners and other business or nonprofit leaders who are at that pivot point where you were a few years ago, where they've done a portion of their career, they've learned a lot, they've experienced a lot, and they're reevaluating meaning. What advice do you have for designers who are in this moment? I think the only reward comes from spending time with yourself. Right. And I have to stop. There's a, you may know, there was a famous Boston Red Sox named Oil Can Boyd. <laughs> And he was having a great hot string, <laughs> a great a great run of successes. And somebody said, "Oil can, what do you know? What's your secret?" And he said, "I'm playing within myself." And I think about that a lot, right? right because right. in in the world today, it's very easy to not be in our bodies anymore, to be doing things that we think we have to do, to be addressing needs that other people say are important, to be reacting to social media, to being seen, whatever it is, right? There's right. a million things, and. What it requires is really taking the time to think about what it is that matters to you. And in, in creative writing, the expression is, you know, that it has to be clear what the author has come to say, what matters to you enough to devote your life to. Right, it. right. And that has to be the guide. And as corny as it sounds, it's actually very difficult, but the most rewarding thing in the world. And what we're seeing today, right? We're in such a precarious moment with democracy, with the planet. None of us should feel any time to spend on things that, that don't matter and that don't further the things that you're committed to and the things that you believe in. It, it's so true. And you know what the last, in our conversation recording now, in the last 20 months, has reinforced I've seen in all parts of our lives and spaces in there, is this break with these implied obligations, right? The things we thought we needed to do, the things that we had to do, kind of having that freedom really, or taking that freedom to separate it and say, I wanna have more control over my next job, my next project, my next career, my next weekend, right? We're seeing that, but I, I love your advice to that group because that's what we have as, as members of our profession. We're a dynamic space that's focused on change, we're, we're hearing more and more conversations of designers and business leaders, you know, wanting to find peers who can help them think through what's next. You know, if I can say there's another kind of advice that I, 
I saw with every single graduate student. Okay. And that is still really one of the most important things. And that is that we can only act on concrete things. Right. So in sustainability, it's called tapping the power of limits, right? When right. we have a limited amount of time, we get really efficient and creative right. about how we use it or money. A lot of people come to the overwhelming challenges and the number of things there are to do saying, I've got to end poverty or, you know, I right. have to find a cure for COVID, whatever it is, right? And you can't ever act on those because they're too abstract. Right. And so I would say, look around at the things that you see that are very specific and concrete. And one of the things I wish designers would think about, because it affects all of us, is, you know, all of this metaverse and, and the effect that social media are having on children and everyone, right. right? That we're becoming so distanced from nature. And the more distanced from nature we become, the more likely it is that we're going to self-destruct. Right. You know, how can design let young people know that we're already living in a metaverse? Right. <laughs> nature is a metaverse. There's every bit of interest and richness and, and adventure possible. Can design act in service to that instead of doing more websites and apps? And locking us into the same bad posture sitting in front of our exactly. screen, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were talking a bit before about kids and watching the evolving curiosity and growing in without the limits that adults put on them and keeping mm -hmm. that freshness as we've learned and go through. You know, one of the, the things that we spoke about as well is some of the projects that you've been involved with, and we were talking about youth and social impact. I'd love to hear a bit about the program you've done with youth in the foster care system. Sure. Well, the independent lives, it's a really, it's a tangible conversation, right? Yeah. And it's design is so central to it. We, I work in partnership with an amazing organization called Community Solutions and their program called Built for Zero that is solving adult chronic and veterans homelessness. And a wonderful foundation, the Larson Family Foundation, is supporting my efforts to help Built for Zero extend their work to foster youth. Mm. And what immediately uh, becomes apparent is that the system isn't working. 50% right. of people who are homeless in this country as adults were in the foster system. And nobody's talking to young people about what they need or what it's like for them. And so one of the things I'm doing is working with communities and helping them use design to bring young people into the conversation and to look at journey maps and to have the, the whole adult community because a lot of the agencies don't even know what other agencies do. Right. And and in, in so many cases, they had not ever looked at the journey for the people that they're helping. They focus on under 12 and then over 12, it goes to somebody else. And, and so design has become this extraordinary approach that has capacity to level the playing field. Right. And one of the a founder of one of the nonprofits that supports foster youth said, you know, everybody knows they want to bring young people to the table, but they don't know what to do with them once they're there. Right. Yeah. And so 
the ways that design, the approaches design brings to equalizing a room and to supporting collaboration, all of these things are brand new and extraordinarily energizing for these foster communities. As we were preparing and having our conversation, just incredible work that you're doing with the project and really speaking of design's ability to empower all those who are part of the process. So this isn't design happening to someone, but having youth who are experiencing the journey be able to be empowered and be a part of the Mm co-design, which I think is really important. You know, when we think about the space, have there been other projects that you've seen lately that have caught your attention, that you've seen uh, design really being amplified and used well for social impact? Anything? I see a lot of things happening within academia. Okay. I see institutions responding to what I think is a inherent aspect of designers, which is they want purpose, right? Right, right. Everyone wants purpose. Everyone wants to feel like they're working on something that matters. And so there are more university programs. There are more centers. And some sometimes it's tough to do it in the the belly of academia. Sometimes it's a center that's associated with the university. There's a new new center at Northeastern. There there are things going on that are really encouraging. And I see a lot of programs that are focusing on integrating design. The the work that I mentioned in global health. There's absolutely real scale now in the number of organizations and companies that are using design to develop more effective programs and products for global health. When you look at the kind of growth of the programs or the space and the work that you're doing, is there anything that you wish that other disciplines knew in ways that they could be partners and collaborators? I wish other disciplines knew that this is not design thinking. Right. <laughs> I wish people would stop using that expression. I said to someone at ASU, uh, he, he was, I forget what country he was from, it was from some country in Africa. And I said, well, you know, if you were a master chef, design thinking would be a cake mix. Would you use it? Right. Yeah. So I, I think, and I relate this to our society in general, right? That everybody wants to, a quick fix right. and a soundbite. And I wish they knew that design is rigorous and a real discipline. Right. And that it is available to anyone and has relevance everywhere. And I think that's, it's powerful to state and to state again and to state again, right? That design has value and it's accessible to anyone everywhere. And it is a discipline with real rigor. I know that in conversations we have with a lot of design leaders and business leaders, it's that connection point and the translation of value that, that we're equal partners and peers at the table, at the solution set, you know, that design is an important part of that. But I have conversations with many other business leaders. And one of the things they ask me is how can I be a better partner? And I, so I appreciate your answer in that because we have other disciplines that want to be a part in our common problem set with these big idea problems that we can come in and the practical ways to start. I have one more question for you. It kind of spins off from what we've been talking before, which I've loved, but 
I want to talk a bit about your exhibition and design for the other 90% at the Cooper Hewitt uh. Design Museum. See, I know it's a good topic whenever I hear you say, ah. Well, yeah. I Paul Pollock, who I, I think, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but Paul Pollock was the best designer I ever knew. And he was not a designer. He was a psychiatric researcher and an entrepreneur. And he, in his youth, developed a concept around social architecture. He was treating people who had mental breakdowns right. and trying to figure out why some people had them and others didn't and recognized that there's a social hierarchy, which now we call the social contributors to health, right? Poverty, you right. know. So Paul knew that and he was a wonderful natural designer. And he always said, I met him. In fact, we all met him at the Aspen Design Summit, which was sponsored by AIGA and the Aspen Design Conference. Paul said that David Kelly said to him once, he said, you know, Paul, you actually are a designer. And Paul said he came because he wanted to know if that was true. And if that was true, he had designs on the design community. <laughs> and he came to that wanting people to know that all designers were only working for 10% of the population that had money. And so at the end of our three days in Aspen, I remember sticking a note under his suspender and saying, because it was Michael Cronin and Karen Hibma and a couple other people, and we, and, and Willoughby, absolutely, we said, we're not sure what you're doing or what you're about, but we want to help you get there. Right. And that exhibit emerged from a week that we spent together at Paul and his wife Aggie's place in Nova Scotia. And I think that was one of the biggest wake-up calls. It was purely inspired by Paul. That was the first time that we showed evidence for mm -hmm. what design can do in places where nobody ever imagined design going. Right. And to me, that opened a door for a different way of thinking about what design is and what a designer can be. I love just the thought, the premise of it, partnerships, local, global, individual, and at the organization level that are inventing unique ways to provide better access. And it's just such critical elements that we speak of in these projects, food, water, shelter, health, education, and energy. And looking at how this comes together for a design for the other 90%. I mean, it really speaks to the work that's available for us, the work that needs to be done for designers and engineers, students, professors, architects, social entrepreneurs, or any of us just finding a way that we can help to make things better. Can I, I just want to say one other thing. Yes, al always. Paul was one of the most important inspirations in my life and a, and a mentor. And, and I got to spend lots of time with him over the years. What's remarkable about him is that he did what he did and saw what he saw because he was out in the world doing it. He interviewed right. 3,000 poor people. He went all over the world. He spent time with farmers understanding why they were poor. And it's a little bit related to the question about what people should do. Right. Paul was not a theoretician. It was very late in his life that he stopped to think about the theory behind what he was doing. He was just out there 
practicing what he's called radical practicality. So I think it's the third piece of advice that I would give people. Don't sit around thinking about what you want to do. Go out and learn from people what's needed and be out in the world. I think that's a wonderful piece of advice and a powerful moment, I think, for us to close out our conversation. It's been an honor, Cheryl, to sit down and talk with you and, and explore these conversations and really kind of help our audience shape the power of impact of social innovation design and design and social innovation. So thinking about stopping, jumping in, doing work where you are, and I love the notion of this appalls radical practicality. So as we think about turning a corner in 2022, is there anything you'd like to share with our audience? that's top of mind for you as we go into 2022? Yeah, I think one of the prerequisites for design, and when you ask about how people can be better partners, designers are always willing to question everything. Right. And I think this moment and 2022, we have to include ourselves in that. I think we have to question everything we automatically do, everything we think. And think about how to be in the world in a way that supports life. I think that's a wonderful way to end our conversation today. Cheryl, I appreciate you. I appreciate your curiosity, your vision, and your spirit of collaboration to help us all move forward better. So thank you for helping us play around with the messy edges of the future. Thank you, Benny. Well. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of Design Adjacent, where we look at the future through the lens of design, business, and the world around us. I am your host, Benny Johnson, and I look forward to you joining us for our next podcast. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent Podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.